Hello everyone, welcome to Seabreeze Church Online. If you're new to Seabreeze, my name is Bevan and I'm the senior pastor here and we're so glad that you've joined us today. Last several Sundays we've been talking about the fact that we are living in uncharted waters. Uh, we just really have no map or chart to tell us what's going to happen or what's coming next. We're kind of like those ancient sailors who left the charted waters of coastal Europe in search of the new world. And what kept them moving forward day after day was the hope of spotting land. Land for them, of course, would represent uh, the arrival of the new world and the end of their destination. Now, in these uncharted waters that we're facing, most of the talk is about just simply getting through this. The land we're looking to is simply on the other side of COVID-19. But I think this is an opportunity for us to lift our eyes much higher and look much further ahead than just what's on the other side of this crisis. The land that marks the final destination that we're all in search of is heaven. And it turns out we're not on a river that just allows us to float along and carries us all to that destination. It's more like we're on an ocean, drifting on the currents of our own sin, affected by the sin of other people, and rising and falling on the waves of our circumstances. And we are in the water, unable to swim far enough to make our way to that land. In other words, we need saving. We need to be rescued. This coming Friday is Good Friday, the day when we remember the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it was on that cross that Jesus spotted this land for all of us and called us to follow him there. This is one of the things we read about that moment when Jesus was on the cross. It's found in John 19, verse 30. It says this, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. These are the last words of Jesus on the cross. He said it was finished. The great plan of God to save us had finally come to its conclusion. The shocking, mind-bending plan that involved God himself taking on a body and breathing air was now breathing its last breath. And while the soldiers executed a man, that man who of course was far more than just a man, was also executing something important. He was executing the most important of all plans. The plan to save us, to rescue us, was completed in that moment and on that day. But now, as it was then, the understanding of our need for this kind of saving tends to be kind of low. And that's because our need for salvation is often more commonly felt before it's really understood. Adam and Eve were the first ones to feel the impact of sin. They were the first ones, in a sense, to jump into the water, jump into the ocean, and to need saving. And they felt the first two powerful emotions that come from this decision. They felt guilt. Their first reaction was to try to cover themselves up and hide. And their second thing they felt was fear. Adam told God that they hid because they were afraid. And so now fear and guilt have owned us ever since that moment. As descendants of Adam and Eve, we are haunted by these two. Only the plan that was executed by Jesus on that day can say it is finished to these two, to guilt and to fear. So let's look at each of these. First of all, <clears throat> finished with guilt. Wouldn't that be amazing to be done with guilt? Well, Jesus is the only permanent answer to the guilt that we all carry. A description is given in Colossians chapter 2 of what was taking place on the cross in relationship to our guilt. This is what we read in verses 13 through 14. He forgave us all our sins, 
Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. This is referring to a common business practice that was done in the ancient world. Just like today, whenever money uh, is borrowed, there's a written agreement that's drawn up. And whenever the debt was paid in full, the word canceled was written across that agreement. And it was nailed to a post in the public square. It was a way of recording it publicly. So the it is finished words that Jesus said on the cross are three words in English. But in the language of the New Testament, it's only one word. And that word is tetelestai. This was the word that was actually written across the statements of death that were nailed to a post whenever that debt had been paid in full. So when Jesus said, it is finished, when he said to Telestai, the verbal and the visual message was very clear to everyone who was listening to Jesus that day. The message was this, Jesus is the full and final payment for our sins. He was nailed not to a post in the center of town, but up on a cross for everyone to see. And by saying this one word, everyone listening knew what he meant. This wasn't a ending it is finished statement. This was a paying it is finished statement. Now, financial debt and moral debt have a lot of similarity to them. With financial debt, you get a statement listing what you owe. With moral debt, you don't get a written statement. The statement itself goes straight to your heart. You feel the debt as guilt. But the guilt that we feel isn't as clear as a written statement of our guilt. And this means that we're often a little fuzzy about the nature of our moral debt. The response to a written statement of financial debt, of course, is to make the payment that is called for. And we have the same response when it comes to guilt. We have a sense that we need to make a payment of some kind. But because the guilt is subjective, the payments tend to be all over the place. They tend to be subjective as well. And what that means is that we are never fully finished with guilt. We continue to feel guilt. It's never clear how many good things we have to do in order to pay for all the bad things that we've done. It's subjective based on however we feel. I mean, just imagine if a, a bank offered a subjective mortgage. In other words, the payments were whatever you felt were enough and whenever you felt like making them. I'm pretty sure that the payments would be less frequent and for fewer dollars than the written agreement would be for. This is why God has put our moral debt into writing. In the verse that we just read, it is called the written code. What that means is God has already written out the nature of our moral debt. You can read the details in the pages of the Bible. A detailed listing of God's laws are contained in the Bible with all kinds of examples of how people like us have broken the written code. You don't have to read very far to get a pretty clear sense of the objective nature of your guilt. I think this is why many people don't read it. It's because they have a sense that it's going to stand in opposition to them. That's what it says. These words stand in opposition to us. And that's the nature of laws. That's what laws do. If we decide to break a law, the law doesn't change in order to get on our side, in order to affirm us. No, the law stands in legal opposition to our actions at that point. Now, we all feel this when it comes to God's laws. But as we read about it in the written code of the Bible, it becomes clear 
how much moral debt we really are carrying. The summary really is this, our moral debt is only growing, it's not declining. So much so that we can't even make the monthly minimum payments on our moral debt. And that is concerning, that is extremely bad news. But it's only those who read the Bible and take it seriously that can fully appreciate the good news of what Jesus did that counters the bad news of our moral debt. Most people are on the subjective moral payment plan. If you ask them, they're doing fine. But if you ask the bank, if you ask God, it's not going to be good for them when the note comes due. It turns out that the problem isn't just the amount of moral debt that we're carrying, but also the payments that we're making. Most people tend to think that you pay off moral guilt, moral debt, by doing good things. But the problem with that thinking is we are supposed to do what is good. That's what the written agreement says. It it describes the good that we're supposed to do. So what that means is we don't get extra credit for doing what we're supposed to do. And therefore, doing good never pays for doing bad. Let me put it this way. If, If I don't make my mortgage payment this month, I have broken the agreement that I have with the bank. If I decide to make my mortgage payment the next month, that's great. But that doesn't make up for the month that I didn't make my mortgage payment on. So now if I decide not to make my payment this month, next month I I owe two months. What is already owed that month and the month I didn't pay. And this is the problem that we have when it comes to simply paying our way out with good deeds out of our moral debt. Doing good today does not make up for doing wrong yesterday. Doing good today is what we are supposed to be doing. So we just keep piling up moral debt. And if we die in this condition of moral debt, then we will be separated from God forever. Our only hope is an external source of payment that is large enough to make up for the moral debt that we all carry. And that's exactly what Jesus offers. That's why the cross and the resurrection are such good news. He lived a sin-free life. And if he was just a man, that would be amazing, but it wouldn't be good enough because it wouldn't be enough of a moral payment for my debt, for your debt, for anyone's debt who wants to take the offer. But because Jesus not only lived a perfect life, but because he was God in flesh, his sinless moral bank account is big enough. It's eternal. It's limitless. And therefore, he can offer and it is finished kind of statement about our guilt. He can pay for all of our debt. So he died for us in our place. And he offers us this new agreement. He says, follow me and I'll pay your debt. And if we accept the offer, the image of Jesus nailed on that cross is really our public paid in full statement. And every time that we do wrong and we feel the guilt that comes with that, we confess, we try to clear that up as best we can, But then we go back to this scene on the cross and we listen in our hearts to the words of Jesus when he says, it is finished. Your guilt is finished. It is paid in full. The next thing that occurred on the cross was the opportunity for us to be finished with fear. So finished with guilt and now finished with fear. The coronavirus, I think, is just the latest example of why we have good reason to be afraid. A small living thing, smaller than the eye can see, is able to single-handedly remove trillions of dollars from the economy, shut down the global economy, and kill thousands 
and counting. Now in this modern world, with the advances of science for which I'm very grateful, we though can very easily fool ourselves into thinking that we are in fact safer than we really are. And then something like this happens and we are reminded of the fact that we are always walking over a deep pit called death. And we are walking on a very, very thin cover that could give way at almost any time and we'd fall in. Jesus said, it is finished. Death is finished. Not just his death, but death can be finished. His was the first death that would not be final. And it was the beginning of the opportunity to have many more deaths that would not be final. This impact is described for us in detail in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Here's what it says. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, the fear of death is the mother of all fears. It's the root from which the tree of fear and all of its branches and all of its leaves grow. It is the foundation on which every fear is built. Because if you and I can die tomorrow, which we can, then what in this life can we be rationally confident about? Nothing. You see, fear along with guilt are two of the most rational emotions that we feel. And the only way to remove fear is to get rid of the power of death that every fear is rooted in and attached to. Now that was a laughable impossibility until someone actually did it. Jesus did it. But even if you agree with the historical evidence and are convinced that Jesus really did rise from the dead three days later, how exactly is that gonna help you and me with our fear today? How can his death and his resurrection 2,000 years ago put an end to our fear today? Well, this verse describes the two ways that it can do that. First of all, it says it destroys. The death of Jesus destroys the one who is the author of death and therefore holds all of the power of death. That is the devil. You see, death was his idea. It was his plan. Satan holds the power of death because he authored the cause of death, which is sin. It was his idea. He is the king of death, the author of death. And Jesus came to pay the price of our sin and break the power that he has over death. And no one had ever escaped the powerful grasp of death until Jesus did. His resurrection broke the power of death. Now, if that's all that was needed, then a simple short death would have been enough. But the death of Jesus was not simple. It was not short. It was a long ordeal. It was six hours on a cross not a quick beheading. Why that kind of death? Well, Jesus didn't come just to defeat death itself. If that's all he was doing, then a quick death would have been enough and a resurrection. But Jesus also came to defeat the fear and the anxiety that's been constructed on this foundation of death. As it says in this verse, he also came to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So not only to break the power of Satan, the author of death, but then to free us from our prisons of fear. And that could not be done or quickly and painlessly. Death isn't just a singular moment. It is in part a singular moment, but the power of death is so great that it casts a shadow of fear on every day 
that precedes the day of our death. And that fear is like a prison that enslaves us. Now this prison of fear is a human prison. And that means that God cannot destroy it from the outside without destroying all the prisoners inside. It must be a jailbreak from the, out, from the inside in order for us to be free. But the only ones who can get inside of the prison are humans. It's a human prison. So saving us appears to be an impossibility. It appears that Satan has constructed the perfect prison. God could, of course, destroy the prison, but he wouldn't because that would destroy the prisoners and the prison. It would destroy us, and he loves us. And he can't get inside of the prison because it's too small for him. Only humans can get inside the prison. So it appears to be a checkmate. But then God does the unthinkable. He becomes a man. And in doing so, he gets in the prison with us. Now, I'm, I'm sure Satan didn't even think this was possible. So he never even imagined it. But then it happened. God took on a body. And Satan, of course, did everything he could to arrange the death of Jesus. And he finally accomplished it on the cross. But then three days later, Jesus rose, the day we're going to celebrate next Sunday. The death of Jesus wasn't just a payment for our guilt. It was also an example for us living with our fear. I remember when our kids were young and we were trying to teach them how to swim. We couldn't just walk up to the edge of the pool and say, all right, jump in. Your teacher's in there. Everything should be fine. They would not do it. So we did what every parent has to do. We jumped into the pool and then we looked back at them and we held our arms up and we said, okay, jump in. You can do it. We're here. And then they would jump in. We had to get in first and then invite them to come in after us. That's exactly what Jesus did. As it says in that verse, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So Jesus had to get in this jail of fear and show us the way out of fear. Show us that the bars of this prison can actually be broken. That he has the key that can unlock this jail. We can be free from the shadow of death called fear. So whenever we live in fear, when we allow fear to, to dominate us, we are accepting Satan as our jailer. When in Jesus Christ, he is no longer our jailer. Jesus has been in the very same prison, the very same jail that we're in, the jail of fear. But on that day that we will celebrate next Sunday, Jesus destroyed Satan and his biggest weapon, death, and he defeated him. So if guilt and fear are finished, then why do we still struggle? I struggle. I struggle with guilt. I struggle with fear. It's finished. Guilt and fear are finished, but we're not finished. That brings us to the third point, not finished with salvation. There's a lot of life to be lived, and that's a struggle for all of us. And this struggle of salvation is described in Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13. Here's what it says. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, the tendency is to think of God's offer of saving us, of his offer of salvation as an event, rather than something that is, is a long process. But the best way to think about it is it is an event, but then there is a process that's a part of it too. In other words, if you're drowning, 
and the lifeguard swims out to you, throws you the buoy, the buoy is secured, you're saved. In that moment, you are saved. In one sense, your ordeal is over. But in another sense, it's not completely over. And that's because you're still in the water. You're still a long ways away from land. And that's the way Jesus saves us. If you ask Jesus to forgive you and save you from the eternity apart from God that we all deserve, he does. That occurs in that instant. But it's not completely over. The better way to think of it is it's just begun. The saving has just begun. The end result of it is secure, but there's a lot of distance to travel. We're still a long ways away from heaven. There's a lot of life to be lived. One day, Jesus will take us from this world to heaven, and we'll be all done with sin, and we'll be all done with fear. Then the saving will be truly over. But now we're still in this world. We're still in the water. We're not on land yet. There is work, therefore, to be done. So fear and trembling, as this verse talks about, is the result of living in the middle of salvation. We've been saved, but we haven't arrived yet. And salvation is not something that we are tranquilized for, and then we're woken up when it's all over. No, one day we will be taken to heaven, and, but in this life, we need to learn how to swim. Not so that we can save ourselves. We could never do that but so that we can cooperate with the saving work of Jesus Christ rather than fight it. My son was a State Beach lifeguard for six years. And he told me recently that whenever they swam out to rescue someone who was drowning, that they would get the buoy to them, they would, the person would grab on the buoy, they'd secure the buoy, and then they'd begin to tow them back in. And one of the things they would often say to the people that they had just saved is, we are not a tow service you need to kick also. And that's a great image of what Jesus does. Jesus comes, he saves us, the buoy is secure, we are not gonna drown. But Jesus didn't come to save us just to be a tow service. We need to kick too, we need to put effort into this. Not so that we can save ourselves. No, without Jesus, we would never be able to save. We could never kick hard enough. And so the Bible is full of a, a lot of helpful ways for us to, to kick, to deal with guilt and fear. Now again, they will not save you. Only Jesus can say it is finished to guilt and it is finished to fear. But if we work on both of these together, we can experience more of the reality of Jesus saving us, even though we're still in the water and we're a long ways away from heaven. Here's a suggestion on each. With guilt, if it really helps if we will put in the humbling and hard work of simply confessing our sins, simply being honest about it. Here's what 1 John 1, 9 says about this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, we confess our sins not as a condition of God's forgiveness and salvation, but in order to grow and experience the freedom from guilt that comes with our sin. That is real work. That's humbling work. That's the kind of kicking that we can do to cooperate with the forgiveness that we've already received in response to our guilt. What about fear? It really helps to put in the work of bringing our fearful concerns to God in prayer. Here's what Philippians 4, 6-7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Whenever you are anxious, it's usually not that helpful just simply to remember that Jesus defeated death, the mother of all fears, on the cross. That's good, but it's hard sometimes to make the connection 
to the thing that you're worried about right now to the cross. What really helps is to take what you're anxious about and turn that into prayer. So make a list. Make a list of the things that you're afraid of, the things you're anxious about, and work your way through those in prayer. Now that takes work. That's kicking. It's not saving work. It's cooperating work. Now, of course, we're all wondering when this crisis will be over, when it will be finished. But on the other side of COVID-19, we will still struggle with our guilt and with our fear. Only Jesus can say it is finished to both. So as we begin this week that marks the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, settle this matter in your heart. Ask Jesus to save you from the guilt of your sin and then decide to follow him out of the prisons of your fear. Join me in praying this saving prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you on this day and we admit the guilt of our sin. As we read in the pages of the Bible, we get a clear understanding of, of how much debt we really have before you. And Jesus, we recognize that only you are the one that can forgive us. Only your payment on the cross has enough moral power to cancel our debt. And so we ask you, some of us maybe for the first time, some of us restating what we've already asked, we ask that you would forgive us. And we claim that only your sacrifice can ever free us from guilt. And now, Jesus, we decide to follow you as a part of that decision, not only to trust you as our Savior, but to follow you as our Lord. We decide to follow you out of the prisons of fear that we all struggle with. And we pray that you would help us, especially in these times of struggle and crisis as we wrestle with fear. God, we pray you would give, you would give us calm in the middle of the storm. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.